there's the um, shift in the online experience, which you could say that's VR, that's uh, the storytelling I was talking about earlier, like just the appreciation for the fact that there's different you're greeting different types of customers in all of these situations and one size doesn't necessarily fit all, meaning you have to kind of meet them where they are. That whole mindset is, I think, coming out more in what in what uh, brands are doing today. This is The Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer, brand, and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast, which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Welcome back to The Safari. This is Morty Singer speaking. It is May 2021, and today we are going to be talking about logistics. This is the logistics episode. And, you know, it's just important to get things to people quickly. And increasingly, it's harder and harder uh, with the cost of doing so, but also competition from the likes of Amazon uh, makes it uh, tricky for all kinds of smaller brands to compete. And so Quiet Logistics is a solution to that. And uh, I figured they are uh, some of the best around, if not the best around when it comes to this stuff. And um, Kate Clemmer Terry is the Chief Revenue Officer of Quiet Logistics. And she's got an incredible background in fashion and retail, having really for 30 years been at the forefront of e-commerce. I mean, she, she led that function or those functions at Ralph Lauren and Banana Republic, Kate Spade, Coach, Tommy Hilfiger, etc. So some of the biggest names around. And she's going to explain to us how important it is today to make sure that the back of house and all of the plumbing is in place to get all of your incredible products to the consumer on time and maybe quickly. Stick around. Kate, thank you so much for joining me on the safari. Thank you for having me here. So where are you? Uh, right now, I'm sitting in Devons, Massachusetts, which is where our company was originally founded. So I'm visiting our fulfillment center for meetings. Yes, and, and we're about to learn a lot about fulfillment centers and, and I, fulfillment centers with an, an S at the end, because I know you mm -hmm. have many and that's part of the magic of what you do. So Kate, before we, we go around sort of trying to learn about how to get products to consumers in the 21st century in an efficient and elegant manner, um, it's important, I think, to start with why someone like you, who has in fact been on the brand side most of her career, suddenly finds herself in the role that you are in as the chief revenue officer of one of the most uh, advanced, technologically driven logistics centers uh, on the planet, and why that makes a difference. So, so tell us a little bit about your background uh, in in prestige retail, and then um, how you how you landed where you landed. So I, I really started my career um, on the merchandising side, uh, and then that evolved into the e-commerce side eventually. I always sort of had a penchant for computer sort of science-y kind of things. Um, and so in 
I worked at Ralph Lauren. I worked at Banana Republic. I worked at a lot of uh, American companies on the on the uh, merchandising side. And then when the e-commerce piece started to come out, I had actually left Ralph Lauren, but I came back to launch Polo.com, and that was the that was the beginning of e-commerce in my career, which was early on. It was obviously. Uh, 20 years ago. Um, and um, I think that background of when you're a merchant, first of all, in the old school of merchants, you learn the entire organization because in the old school, you were kind of the hub and everybody else was sort of, you know, you, you're kind of responsible for every piece to the puzzle. And then in e-commerce, you're learning all of the supply chain piece as well, as well as um, other aspects. So that full knowledge really prepared me well for many other iterations of down my career. Um, and then I would say the brands that I work for um, were super brand conscious. Uh, and, you know, Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren, uh, Kate Spade, Coach, like all super brand conscious. And, and so the combination of all those three things, I think, um, really leads well into the job I'm in today um, is as the chief revenue officer of Quiet, um, we are taxed with making sure that we're helping our brands grow in a way that's attributable for their brand, right? So what does that look like from a digital experience and from a, um, you know, um, fulfillment experience kind of standpoint? So I, I remember listening to, um, what was it, a, a, a YouTube video where Marvin was being interviewed by someone uh, in the 90s talking about what he called electronic retailing. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and it was sort of, you know, 0.1% of the business and he thought it was going to be really cool and interesting to follow. And, and of course you started at the genesis of e-commerce, um, you know, and seeing it today compared to what it was then must be kind of mind blowing for you. Uh, maybe more mind blowing for those getting into the business today than it is for you, but nonetheless, a fascinating sort of progression because you were there yeah. when you know none of the plumbing was available. You had to build everything from scratch with your hands and there was no or few SaaS providers to bolt on and do all kinds of stuff. So um, what was it like? How could, how were you able to, um, you know, act as a silo within an organization? And were there any things that were better back then? that maybe we could learn about today uh, from how you did it when you were doing everything yourself? So I think the interesting thing is, yeah, there was no, you know, there were, there were platforms back then, but the platforms were not anything close to what they are today. Everything today is so much more sort of plug and play, as they like to say, and and everything, it makes it, you could be up and running with a with a brand in days today, as opposed to months and you know possibly years in the past. I would say the one downside to that is that because it was such a wild west, we really did you know imagine and create custom things by brand. Whereas today, I think you end up with a lot of one to many kind of strategies, like every Shopify website kind of looks a little similar because you end up, you know, utilizing these very um, fast to market kind of capabilities. Um, I would say in the, in the, if it, totally what you would expect from Ralph Lauren, um, we were very big into storytelling back then. And that was a big part of our website. And how do we really expose that kind of key to Ralph's brand of storytelling. Um, and we did things back then that, you know, I, I actually wrote something to David Lauren recently to say, we were way ahead of our time <laughs> because we, 
we had 3D shops that, you know, was all, um, you know, uh, I can't remember what the technology was called, but it was all like you could click on a, on a shirt in a, in a general store and it would pop up. And so that type of storytelling, I think, is really important in e-commerce. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of brands got away from it. And, and now I see it coming back, which is, which is exciting. It's an exciting shift because it's so necessary. You know, you're not really um, optimized for all the different types of customers if you don't have some sort of push selling going on, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. And so today in this, and you referenced the Shopify universe, and there seems to be these two sort of um, dueling uh, ecosystems, there's the Amazon world, and then there's the, the Shopify world. And obviously, you really help brands that predominantly, at least in your origins, dealing with digital native brands who either use Shopify or have or something akin to that. You're trying to get them to you know be uh, as powerful maybe from a sort of cooperative perspective all their mm -hmm. plumbing being provided by you um to to be able to to really compete with the amazons of the world and really trying to get things to people not only quickly but efficiently and and then i think it's what's equally important gracefully can you can you try and explain what quiet logistics does how you do it and i think most importantly that sort of human touch that is not just a touch, it's kind of a, a stamp uh, yeah. once the, the robots have done what they have to do because it's really fascinating. And I'll tell us about Quiet Logistics and what the secret source is. Well, I just, I want to make a comparison first with the Amazon point that you made too. Um, I think the biggest difference is people use Amazon as obviously as a marketplace and for exposure. And it's not necessarily where you would go to get your brand sort of um, fully in. And obviously the way they fulfill is not brand centric um, as the people that would choose someone like us or, or 3PF is more interested in that interaction of the, the actual parcel that comes to, comes to the customer. That's the first, when you think about these digitally native brands that we started with, that's the first physical interaction you have with that brand. And so that has to be an amazing experience. And so that's one of the things that Quiet has always done well is not shied away from doing those custom, interesting, beautiful things that make that unveiling um, so beautiful. Handwritten notes, special stickers, custom branded packaging, whatever whatever mm -hmm. the client asked for. Um, and so to that point, to get to your robots, um, one of the things we realize as labor prices increase, which they have um, dramatically in the last few years, but just definitely over our 12-year history, um, you have to get efficiencies out of the building in other ways. And so a lot of companies have realized that robotics is a way to do that. And it's not necessarily in our world, it's definitely not to replace the people, but it's to have the things that are not value-added for a human to do, like walk around a building. I mean, unless they're trying to just get their steps up for the day, <laughs> there's not a lot of value in a human walking three or four miles um, to pick orders as opposed to letting a robot do that and then letting a robot do things that it's also more capable of, of computing, you know, path, the best path to go and things like that, that leaves our labor open for doing all of these custom sort of value added services that we, um, that we, that we excel at. I would say we do, um, hand stamping of the, the luggage tags for one of our clients with gold foil. We do, um, there's some refurbishing we do for returns that was like you, you dress shirts getting put back into their package with all the little plate. You would never know it ever came out of the package. So there's things like that, that only a human could do yeah. and you really need that special attention. So I think that's the balance for us. Yeah. And there's also a secret source, I think, which has got something to do with 
the last mile. I mean, you're you're building oh, yeah. you're building these these facilities. I believe quite close to the epicenter of the most dense urban populations. Mm -hmm. uh, vertical, I think, is one of the big things, and therefore these robots aren't just going around and around; they're going up and down uh, as well. And then, yeah. um, but but also the fact that you have, uh, I'm assuming, the inventory of all of these brands. Um, spread around the different cities where their customers happen to be. How do you interface with a brand uh, to do the planning and allocation of that inventory? And, and I'm, I'm sure that's probably a thing that you help them with because of your background. But how do you say, look, we have a dozen, 20 locations in the United States, whatever it is today. Um, we're going to parse your inventory by item, by SKU, by collection, whatever it is. And we're going to put it in these different locations based on the data that I'm assuming they give you, those brands. Yeah, so to, to that point, we have eight locations now that are spread all over the U.S. Um, and purposefully in urban locations to take advantage of the fact that we feel the whole, the whole industry is moving towards a delivery model that is more, um, you know, it's way faster time to time to customer. So what we call click to door, mm -hmm. right? So when I finish my um, placing my order online and how fast it gets to the to the customer's door, it's also saving a lot of money in terms of um, freight because you're paying to send one big box of inventory to our warehouse and then it's in market, so to speak, and get to the end customer for, for a lot less money. Um, and same day is another piece to that that we will that we are exploring. So how do we do that? You are absolutely correct that this was um, when I started, I said, well, the first thing you're going to run into is resistance from clients because they're not going to want to split their inventory in their heads. They will assume this means they have to carry more um, and which is really definitely not the case. Um, and so what we've been doing with the clients that we've had for a long time, who we feel are ripe for this opportunity to split their inventory, um, we are giving them a tremendous amount of analysis around their around their sales and their inventory and what makes a good product line, you know, what makes a good um, uh, product line to, to do this type of a splitting. And it has to do with the velocity of SKUs and the correlation between SKUs and, you know, how, how often they're selling more than one unit per, per order and that, that kind of thing. Um, and that's the analysis that we that we're uh, ingesting and understanding ourselves, and then figuring out for our clients. So we have a team in business development that are actually planners mm -hmm. <laughs> by trade, um, and that's that's exactly why we hired them is so that they can help out with this piece for sure. And so originally, the the, the digital native brands found you as a, a very graceful solution for them on the one hand, because they were small companies and didn't have any of this plumbing, but also I think your attention to detail and, you know, these young digital native brands, they all think they're Louis Vuitton or Chanel and that's fine and that's good for them. But, but so your attention to that detail made them, made them, um, I think, um, comfortable. Um, what do you think is sort of the next progression here? Because evidently you have many of those kinds of brands as your, as your foundational clients, but I think, you know, you're probably finding, bigger brands saying, hmm, we like that stuff too. Um, and I guess uh, many larger Goliaths maybe are sort of knocking on your door with the with the hopes of having the same kind of service, I suppose. Yes. So definitely. Um, there are big brands that are realizing they need these in-market nodes just as much as the tiny guys. And for them, they 
mostly they're keeping their main centralized um, hub, if you will, and we become the spokes. And so they wouldn't put all 100,000 SKUs that they may have in our building, but they put 15, 20, whatever the top 15 or 20,000 are um, based on analysis that they do, you know, around the allocation of that. It helps them also with their stores so that then that's a centralized truly um, um, virtual inventory for stores and for e-commerce sitting in market. So I can replenish my store super fast as well as, you know, solve the direct consumer piece. So yeah, that's a big piece of of, um, our growth as well because those larger brands. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage, and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. And so what's sort of one of the biggest hurdles for, you know, young brands to scale? And, you know, how does Quiet really provide that sort of much needed data monitoring, shipping, fulfillment services? You know, I think one of the biggest challenges, there's two big challenges for them. One is um, how high is high, which is like what we always used to say as merchants, but how high is high? They don't know how to you know, the forecasting piece is not necessarily their, their skill set. Most of the brands that we've met along the, the years, they've come out of marketing or um, design or a creative side of the business. They, they very rarely come out of the supply chain side and the planning side. So the, the forecasting piece is always a, a challenge and knowing how much inventory to carry. And so that's obviously a challenge for us. We don't really want to be in the business of uh, storage. We want to yeah. be in the business of outbound to my earlier point. So for us, the challenge for them is really how to help them do their inventory analysis, like I was just saying, and how do we make sure that we're on top of what they're, you know, inbounding and making sure that it's um, all productive. And at the same time, this is the second challenge, is the disposition of inventory. You know, the bigger brands have com- gotten over that hump and they're fine with sending stuff to TJ Maxx or whoever, but these littler brands are very brand conscious. And that's a challenge we saw is that, oh my gosh, they just, they don't have anywhere that they felt comfortable getting rid of this product. So one of our initiatives this year is to come up with a, which I think we talked about, is to come up with a disposition, sort of like a two day a year sample sale kind of a website where we could help our brands um, in a closed kind of environment, uh, dispose of inventory that's no longer um, saleable. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you're, you're, you're dealing with, you know, obviously these, uh, let's say mid-sized companies and now some larger guys that are coming and knocking on your door, but you also have a an incubator program for very small companies. What, what does that look like? Because I'm sure there are many people who would love to work with you but feel that they shouldn't approach you because they're too small in their minds. What is that incubator, an incubator program? We look at, um, we have a screening process on our 
website and other places that you interact with us in LinkedIn and whatnot that that does ask kind of the size of you. And then when you're in that incubator status, we do um, try to get a few pieces of information to see whether you're um, the right fit for an incubator. What we're looking for is someone that has a unique proposition, does have the right um, talent internally. There's a few little bellwethers that we look for. Um, and then we think it's worthwhile to have somebody in that program. So all that program really means is that we give you a little leeway to figure out your growth. Um, we're a little more um, relaxed on certain requirements that we have for the bigger brands just because we want to make sure that we're giving you the opportunity to grow. And But you do have a measurement period. And so if you, we, we, and we provide all the best practices of, you know, what all the other clients are doing. So it's a, it's a learning experience for them as well as um, hopefully a good proving ground. I mean, thankfully we've had some brands um, away luggage. I think we shipped their first piece of luggage um, there's, a, there's quite a few brands that we have now that are very large that we did their first few units. So it's worked. <laughs> so speaking of le learning experiences, the, the, I would assume that a brand that works with you, uh, learns more than they might expect from the data that you capture because, and which might even inform future merchandising decisions, indeed, even product development, because they find out from the way they've been able to work with you that in such and such a area of the country, let's say the Southeast, uh, actually this product worked incredibly well and because it was able to get to them in one day or whatever, um, it, it informed a decision-making process. I mean, do you see or do you provide data back to the merchants of the brands to help them identify, um, I, th I think back to the you know, the my Macy's uh, way of looking at the world of 69 regions and trying to, you know, pass out different, um, different uh, bits of information yeah. around to, to inform buying decisions. Right. The hot store strategy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so today we don't, um, we don't necessarily give them back specific information around the, the product uh, itself because we don't have a lot of attributing in our system which I think would really lend itself to that. But we are talking about how can we aggregate information for them across all our brands. So obviously they have to all uh, um, agree to that, but that gives them more information on buying patterns in different locations and, um, and you know, correlations between things. That That's definitely a piece that we feel like um, even, even customer analysis where we can be showing them the overlap between other brands that we have and are there potential marketing opportunities between the two because they do share a common um, end customer. So there's definitely a lot to be learned from the analysis we have. Yeah, yeah. So, so moving on to maybe the industry more broadly mm. and given your vantage point of you know three decades focusing on this part of the business um, and you actually started this conversation talking a little bit about you know being ahead of the times, trying to meld you know content with commerce and making the the online experience as much as possible like the in-store experience how where, where are you where are you seeing things going because, i mean this is you know blue sky you know where as an industry expert and having been at the forefront of all this where do you see um commerce going is it going into headsets is it going into vr ar uh is it omnichannel going to have a huge amount of top spin that we, we that you're feeling and seeing that we may not have seen yet uh, what are th what are some of the things that are exciting you 
I'd say there's probably three main buckets of that. There's the um, shift in the online experience, which you could say that's VR. That's uh, the storytelling I was talking about earlier. Like just the appreciation for the fact that there's different, you're greeting different types of customers in all of these situations. And one size doesn't necessarily fit all, meaning you have to kind of meet them where they are. That whole mindset is, I think, coming out more in what in what uh, brands are doing today. I would say the other piece is um, the whole delivery side of things. And not just what I was saying about the same day and the next day, but just the more innovative idea around how am I utilizing my stores or, you know, the whole, that whole omni-channel experience and what does the store experience really do to the online experience? I think com- companies really dabbled in it before, but truly most companies that were omni-channel, retail still ruled the roost, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. that, that was the, where the footprint was. That's where a lot of the investment was. And the e-commerce was the tail wagging the dog. Today, obviously, given the last year we've had, that power sort of shifted a little bit, in which case now I think clients... Now brands have to address it and they have to figure out really what does really that I'm agnostic as to where you buy that product truly. And so what's the best experience for the customer and how does that play through every single step of the customer's journey? Um, I think there's lots of brands that still haven't figured that out and that's it. That's got to be a shift for survival. And so in luxury, they say that, you know, the the, the industry wisdom is that 40% of the business will end up uh, being done online, if not in some parts of luxury, 50% of the business done online. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's actually um, realistic or do you think there might be a whiplash to physical, to stores, to experiential um, that could happen? It could be 50%. I think some of that has to do with a, a little bit like how you penetrate geographically, right? So mm-hmm. that that is sort of the key for the growth of, of you know, Net-A-Porter and some of these other brands is there's just the physical retail isn't in the, the geography that the customer is in. Um, I, but I also think that as as we make it easier to understand what product is and to feel the same experience and to get the services the same online as offline, then there's no doubt that it could be 50% for sure. I don't think that means that stores don't need to be there because there's still a tremendous amount of customers. Like what I was just saying, there's a lot of customers who still love the discovery and the discovery, honestly, in a store is, is still to this day, a little more fun than the discovery, especially for luxury products where it's all about the color and the hand and the feel like that. You can't, you can't touch unfortunately online right now. (laughs) So I still think that stores have a, a very important purpose in this whole thing. And and just, I, I know you guys are focused on, for the time being, on North America, but again, with your uh, history in the space, how, how would you advise a brand trying to figure out the global e-commerce nut? Because obviously, there are marketplaces, there are um, cross-border partnerships, and there's obviously doing going it alone, going it with someone else, there's far-fetched, there's all these different people saying, hey, we'll, we want your margin. Um, yeah, yeah. and you know, what would be your sort of, uh, three bullets of advice to a, an entrepreneur, you know, trying to figure out that big nut. I would say to go into Europe or into Asia, obviously having somebody, those are very different markets. I mean, I had the, um, pleasure of living in Amsterdam when I worked for Tommy and running the European business in addition to the U S so I kind of see how totally way more complex that is than what we deal with in the U S. And I think, Having a partner in that for a brand is super important. Today, as I said, 
similar to what we were talking about before, the plug and play nature of things, you could hook up with an, an international provider of things very quickly, very easily um, to get into an international market, but you may not actually do it correctly, right? You may not know um, how to optimize that. So then what you're t- referencing, like with Farfetch and, and these other marketplaces that are luxurious marketplaces are the perfect partner. It gives you the exposure that you need. Um, that margin that you give up is actually totally worth it for what you learn from them. And that's a great initial springboard into getting into those into those markets, I think. And uh, as we sort of get to the top of our time, uh, any final thoughts on uh, what, what's exciting to you about the industry uh, this year as we come out of the pandemic or beyond? You know, I think... Um, a lot, the, the the sheer number of innovative brands that are just coming out of the woodwork, I mean, we see them a lot because obviously they come to us, um, you know, to hopefully work, be in our buildings, but it's, it's mind boggling. There's just so many very cool, innovative brands. And I think the fact that they're able to have this brand aesthetic that they, that's, you know, affordable yet chic and it's sustainable and yet luxurious like they've learned how to combine all the attributes together um it's customized and yet it's in some ways one to many so there's a lot of things they've been able to do and in a nimble way that i think is you know going to going to springboard their growth where those larger brands maybe are a little bit too much of a very large um ship that's not going to move fast enough and i think that's what's super interesting well there's indeed a huge amount of innovation out there including quiet logistics uh, <laughs> quiet in the background doing what you do to support all these people uh, kate clemmer terry chief revenue officer of quiet logistics thank you so much for doing the safari with me thank you if you want to learn a little bit more about traub you can go to traub.io where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.